With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. All right, it's a story that captured the attention of Central Ohio. Eight-year-old Kelly Ann Prosser was kidnapped, raped, and killed. And for nearly 40 years, no arrest in the case. And thanks to a DNA match, now the police say the case is solved. Our Sean Lanier joins us live with a look at how this all came together finally. That's right, Brad. It's really incredible when you think about all of the evidence that uh, detectives had to collect nearly 40 years ago. They had to collect evidence from right here at the school where Kelly and uh, Prosser was last seen. They also had to go down to Madison County and collect evidence there as well. And we spoke with a lady who said she submitted a crucial piece of evidence that led to detectives finding that eight-year-old's body. He was only linked to this by the new DNA test. That's the power of these tests. And with the database, do we know which database was used in this investigation? We don't know this one specifically, but the other high-profile cases that we mentioned uh, was a thing called Jed Match. It's very popular. It's free, and a lot of people have put their DNA there uh, willingly and have certainly helped police in many of these cases. Really have, Amy. Thank you. If you've ever submitted your DNA to a genealogy database in search of relatives or information about your ancestry, something you and I have both done, mm -hmm. there is something you should know. In certain cases, your DNA profile may be accessed by law enforcement to help track down criminals. Looking for you in Columbus, Sean Lanier, NBC4. Last month, police in California arrested James Allen Neal in the 1973 murder of 11-year-old Linda Ann O'Keefe, matching his DNA to the crime scene. Last August, police gave the case another look, sending DNA evidence to a lab to try and find a match in a genealogy database. DNA registries are the newest tool for investigators, helping police nab suspects in several high-profile cases, cold cases, most notably the Golden State serial killings. We were able to obtain DNA from them that confirmed the link to Harold Warren Jarrell as our suspect. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. This week we are going to take a look back at some interesting cases from the 1980s that really kind of 
emphasize the whole stranger danger thing. And we all know that stranger danger doesn't really exist, and what we are taught in school really is not all that imperative. It's actually family members and close friends of the family that we need to be more concerned about. But this week we're going to look at a few cases that did not get solved, and they all happened in my home state of Ohio. I went into this week's episode planning to focus on one specific case. But as I'm one to do, I ended up going down the rabbit hole of missing people from the northern Ohio region in the early 1980s. I came across this hole when I was perusing the Ohio Attorney General's website. Because it was back in September of 2020 when the Ohio Attorney General's office created a cold case unit dedicated to investigate unsolved crimes within the state of Ohio. As you know, units such as these are absolutely essential to solving some of the most notorious crimes. And to have one that is statewide is obviously great for a lot of reasons. Because there are cities big and small that have cold cases that they just can't crack or don't have the manpower to do so. I mean, this whole podcast is literally built around cases where there are very few answers. In a lot of these situations, though, someone knows something. And they have the reasons for keeping quiet. And what a cold case unit can do is circle back to those cases that are unsolved and re-examine the evidence, witnesses, and re-interview possible persons of interest. In doing so, this keeps people involved with the case on edge and probably adds a level of fear that they might get a knock on their door next. And according to Steve Irwin, who is the BCI spokesman, quote, the new unit will be based at the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation and will reach out to local law enforcement agencies to initiate a fresh look at unsolved cases. Now, the unit will offer new forensic analysis as well as investigative resources. Now, everyone who has ever kept a secret knows it's a lot easier to stay quiet when no one is asking any questions. But the ability to hold on to a dark secret, well, that begins to erode over time. All the while, the pressure of that knowledge can become soul-crushing. So these units are necessary in finding justice not just for the victims, their families, but also the communities. I mean, if someone asks the right question, it just might lead to someone cracking. And according to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, quote, we can make a difference, even when years have passed since a murder or sexual assault. The passage of time can actually help, and that some witnesses become more willing to cooperate, and technology advances. Consider, for example, how DNA testing has unmasked, time and again, violent criminals who got away with living among us for too long, unquote. Now, the AG's website is a great resource because they tell you what makes a cold case and how they are trying to solve them. And from the site, they state that the FBI reports since 1995, more than 100,000 cold case homicides have accumulated in the United States. Now, homicide cases actually have the highest solve or clearance rates, according to the website, but it continually decreases. And with that being said, 
the guidelines that the BCI follows when determining a case is cold, they basically use these definitions. A cold case homicide involves any investigation that remains unsolved after being reported to law enforcement and in which all significant and viable leads have been exhausted. The category includes the following unsolved homicide investigations, questioned death investigations in which the cause of death is undetermined, but suspected to be a homicide. Suspicious missing persons cases in which the person is suspected to be the victim of a homicide. Unidentified remains investigations. Again, these are all things that need to be looked at when cases become cold. So what makes the case go cold? Well, the AG says every case is different. So it's really impossible to single out an exact cause. However, we can all assume that it's organizational-related and manpower-related. I mean, these police departments have budgets, and they have to follow them. And, you know, unfortunately, evidence gets lost over time, and they basically fall through the cracks, unfortunately, to to not make it sound so flippant. But unfortunately, that is how some cases become cold, is that they just are just forgotten. So what happens is if you get a lot of social media interest, familial interest, public interest, you know, political interest, that's what will really help you get the BCI investigating a case. And you may be wondering what happens when these investigators re-examine an unsolved case. And again, these methods can vary from case to case depending on what has already been done. But basically, it involves investigators reviewing and organizing the case file and evidence. And this includes mining different case files from sources beyond the originating agencies, such as retired investigators, crime labs, medical facilities, prosecutor, corner, coroner's offices, and private organizations' incident files. And again, investigators evaluate the next best steps and a multidisciplinary team will examine the case file and all the physical and digital and investigative evidence to determine what kind of DNA testing can be done. Now, the BCI does provide any and all resources to aid in the originating law enforcement agency in solving the case, and they do undertake all such work with that agency's full cooperation. Now, again, this is all according to the Attorney General's website. So when the Attorney General announced the founding of this unit, he announced the first 11 cases that they would be looking into. Now, the Journal News of Butler County put together a list of the names. And when I look at lists created by law enforcement, I have a tendency to look for two things the age of the victims, and what year the murder took place. Now, one of the names that stood out to me was Joanne Hebert, and she was 14, and she disappeared on July 22, 1981, where she was headed to the nearby tag market at 9110 Dublin Road. Both of her parents were at their jobs, and... Unfortunately, that was the last time she was seen. 
searches for Joanne would come up empty. And unfortunately, months later, an unfortunate hunter actually came across the partially decomposed body at the fringe of a wooded area. And that was on September 29th, 1981. Now, according to the Marysville Journal Tribune, the death of Joanne was ruled a homicide. Dr. Malcolm McElvore said Hebert died of a massive basal skull fracture caused by a blow on the head from a blunt weapon. Now, the Union County coroner would go on to say there were extensive facial fractures from apparent repeated blows to the face. He said the apparent killing was most likely conducted at the site where the body was found, according to the pathologist's report. Now, the Union County Sheriff's Department began investigating the apparent murder with the assistance from Delaware County Sheriff's authorities. Now, authorities believed there is a missing link, and that is the reddish-orange bicycle that the girl was last seen riding, and that bike has never been found. Now, it is possible that someone in not involved in the crime, could have information about that bike. And both departments at that time were urging anyone with information to to come to the sheriff's office, basically. And unfortunately, nobody was able to locate Joanne that day. And luckily, there are generous people out there who will put their wallet out there for answers. And Joanne's case wasn't any different. In fact, a Dublin business firm who wished to remain anonymous, announced a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the rape and murder of Joanne Hebert. Now, again, any information concerning this crime at the time was to be directed to Lieutenant Vance of the Dublin Police Department. Now, while researching the case of Joanne, I ran into a brick wall. There really wasn't much information to work with, and it was frustrating. And that wasn't when I came across a fascinating article by Mary Grace Potamani of the Akron Beacon Journal, and it's titled, Nine Abducted in Two Years Within 150 Miles. Now, this was 1982, so I was unaware of all these cases, But I think it's worth highlighting her work and the victims she focused on. Now, according to an article I found about the writer, Mary Grace, is that she actually ended up becoming a lawyer after her time with the journal. And reading how thorough her work is, I can see why she would make a great attorney. So kudos to a nice career. So anyway, back to what I was saying. All right. So with uh, diminished returns newspapers provide today... It's really nice to see a deep dive into a situation that may not get the page space it deserves nowadays. So I am going to take a dive into the article because it is a shining example of trying to connect the dots of cases that have become too complex to explain. And I am going to read liberally from her article. She states, They were young, with luminous faces and laughing eyes. Suddenly, they were missing. Now eight, including Dawn Marie Hendershot of Maslin, are dead. The ninth has never been found. In the last two years, the nine girls have disappeared or have been abducted 
from hometowns along a 150-mile trail from Cleveland to Columbus. Azenith Ducat 8 was last seen on June 3, 1980 at a shopping center near her home in Upper Arlington, north of Columbus. Tiffany Papish, 8, was last seen on June 13, 1980, standing in a checkout line at a grocery store near her Maple Heights home. Tammy Seals, 14, was last seen before dawn, October 17, 1980, and she was delivering newspapers in her West Side Cleveland neighborhood. And then there's Joanne's case, who was last seen on July 22, 1981. Then you have Demita Sullivan, 9, who was last seen on October 12, 1981, walking near her Copley Road home on Akron's near West Side. Then you have Tina Marie Harmon, last seen October 29, 1981, walking away from a grocery store near her home in Creston. Krista Harrison, 11, last seen July 17, 1982, being pulled into a van at a park 100 yards from her Marshallville home. Kelly Prosser, 8, last seen September 21, 1982, walking near an elementary school in Plain City, north of Columbus. And then you have Dawn Marie Hendershot, 7, last seen September 29, 1982, leaving Gorel Elementary School near her home in Massillon. All but Tiffany Papish have been found dead, shot, or strangled, or their skulls crushed, or their bodies hidden, too long to know for sure how they died. And with those deaths have come anguished questions. Who? Why? Can it happen again? To my child? Now Mary Grace goes on to write that three men had been convicted in two of the slains, but the verdicts have been thrown into doubt by claims of Quote, perjured testimony and evidence linking one of those slains, that of Tina Marie Harmon, to the death of Krista Harrison. Now, a man has been arrested in the case, in another case, and that was Donald Maurer. And he is an unemployed meat cutter from Maslin. And he was charged, actually, with the death of Dawn Marie Hendershot. There was a similarity in age, geography, cause of death, sexual assault. It was all really wild. He was basically her neighbor, and it, it's just, it's terrible. What Mary Grace goes on to write is that what emerges, however, is a dark cloth of brutality, a cloth from which other killers of other young girls in other cities have been cut. While those killers may rape their victims, their goal is sadistic, not sexual satisfaction, according to Dr. Emmanuel Tenet, who is recognized as one of the top forensic psychiatrists in the country. Quote, we often view rape, whether a child or adult woman, as a means to an end, securing sexual gratification. For those people, sadistic activity is the goal of suffering imposed upon the parents as well as the victim. They need to hurt, often, because they were hurt as children and they need to hurt again and again, Tanay said. Again, he goes on to say that something is terribly distorted in their character. They don't have a normally developed conscience. Feelings of remorse or guilt are unknown. Their conduct is perfectly acceptable to them. This is pretty much standard profiling at this point. Now, it's 1981. 
you know, behavioral science is a new thing. Dr. Richard Dobbins, who was the director of Akron's Emerge Counseling Center, agreed. And he said at the time, quote, whoever is doing this is very disturbed, but also very smart. He may very well understand the sociology of small towns where you don't have the fear syndrome working for children's survival and you don't have police departments prepared to handle these cases. Such people are equally careful in choosing victims, Tanae said. Quote, there is some element, age group, gender, physical feature that makes a certain victim acceptable to them. Such people also tend to be enamored of the enormity of the crimes they commit. Quote, murder is abhorrent to begin with. That in itself might appeal, Tanae said. But it is so abhorrent to our culture to do that to a child that becomes a pinnacle of deprivation. Mary Grace would go on to write that the psychological profiles had been drawn in several of the nine disappearances, but it was only the Upper Arlington Police Department, police detective Edward Tyne, who would discuss specific profiles, saying Tanae's conclusions were consistent with that of the suspect in the murder of Azeneth Ducat. Now, she was last seen by her friends on June 3, 1980 at a crosswalk three blocks from her school. She and her classmates had been kept late, apparently, as a bit of a punishment for some rowdy behavior that day. Now, she was reported missing by her parents at 4 p.m. The 11-block walk usually took about 20 minutes, and 40 had passed. These were clearly parents who were on top of their child, and they were on top of this and unfortunately her fully clothed body was found 22 hours later in a small creek bed one block from her home now according to tyne the girl's skull had been crushed with a large stone and there was evidence of an asexual attack now she had also been choked but no suspect had been identified at that time let's hear from this week's sponsor betterhelp.com all right we are back And now you have the case of Joanne, which was the case that I originally intended to cover this week. Now, she was last seen at 5 p.m. And now, again, I mentioned that she was going to the grocery store, but she was making a phone call from a booth outside that store. And she, again, had her her red and orange 10-speed bicycle propped up against a wall when the store closed two hours later. So Joanne's partially decomposed body was again found on September 29, 1981 by a squirrel hunter in a wooded area of neighboring Union County. Again, her skull had been crushed. No suspect was identified. Now, Tiffany Papish was running last-minute errands that Friday, June 13, 1980, for the family's camping trip. And according to Mary Grace, Tiffany offered to walk to the store for hamburger buns. And in the article, it was when she was in the checkout line that she stepped aside to let an elderly woman pay for her groceries. Tiffany then paid for her purchase, dropped the change in her bag, and went out the store. Unfortunately, she was never seen again. And Mary Grace quotes her father as saying, This is the greatest vanishing act in the world. Houdini could never have done anything to compare. 
Now, a bulletin was circulated by Maple Heights Police that described Tiffany as four feet tall, weighing 58 pounds, with brown hair cut in a shag style. Now, she wore blue shorts and a red t-shirt with the words, quote, let's face it, I'm cute. Unfortunately, her body has never been found. In 1982, police said they followed up any leads that came to the department, but her father disagreed about that, and they didn't believe that everything was being done. And he said, quote, There are still states where my daughter's picture hasn't been shown. Her body has still never been discovered. Then you have Tammy Seals, which was closer to Cleveland, and she was an 8th grade honor student, and she was living with her mother, and her brother and sister, and she actually was delivering newspapers when she disappeared. Now, she was last seen on October 17th, 1980, and only 12 of the 27 papers that she was meant to deliver that day were actually delivered. Her body was found, unfortunately, four months later in an abandoned house just 10 blocks from her home. Now, the cause of death because of that time, is undetermined. Quote, Let the people know that a lunatic is still out there. He's still out there, cried her mother. Now, Orlando Chico Morales of Cleveland was convicted of aggravated murder, felonious sexual assault, and kidnapping, largely on the testimony of a former jail cellmate. Now, the cellmate later said he lied to gain favor with prosecutors, on robbery charges, but Morales was denied a new trial, but an appeal citing publicity, strained emotions, prosecutorial deceit, and constitutional error was before the 8th District Court of Appeals when this article was printed. Then you have Demita Sullivan. She was last seen on on October 12, 1981, walking with two boys near her Copley Road home in West Akron. Days, then months, slipped by as massive searches were conducted by off-duty police officers and volunteers. This is sad. Quote, it's getting sadder by the hour, one detective said. Now again, this is all in Mary Grace's very well-researched article from the Akron Beacon Journal. And she goes on to say that the sadness gave way to anger and frustration after police listed Demita as a runaway. Her parents insisted she was abducted. Her body was found April 21st in a shallow grave a half block from her home. No cause of death determined. No suspect at that time had been identified. Then you had Tina Marie Harmon, who called to her friends, quote, wait for me. The 12-year-old was paying for a fudgicle and heading out the door of a Creston grocery store, and she was never seen alive again. Five days later, on November 3rd, 1981, her fully clothed body was found at an oil well site near Navarre in Stark County. Unfortunately, an autopsy determined that she had been raped and strangled. Now, it looked like there was going to be justice in her case, as Herman Ray Rucker of West Salem and Ernest Holbrook of Lodi were indicted three months after her body was discovered, and Rucker actually was found guilty in June of uh, 1982, I believe, and he was found guilty by a Wayne County Common Pleas Court jury, 
largely on the testimony of four witnesses, including a fellow farm worker. Now, Curtis Maynard was sentenced to life in prison, and he later recanted his testimony. Again, he said he lied because of threats from investigators. This is why you never trust a jailhouse snitch. So, two days later, it was disclosed that evidence had been found linking Tina's death with the kidnap slaying of Krista Lee Harrison of Marshallville. This is all very interesting because of what eventually ends up happening. Now, the matching orange-brown carpet fibers were only one twist in the trial. A key prosecution witness, Tammy Decker, recanted her testimony. Another, Susan Siegler, defended Holbrook from the witness stand. But the judges found Holbrook guilty as an accomplice to murder, rape, and kidnapping. And on September 15th, Rucker was granted a new trial based on the strong probability he would have been acquitted without Maynard's perjured testimony and with the fiber evidence. Now, at that time, prosecutors did ask the Ninth District Court of Appeals to uphold Rucker's convictions. Now, Holbrook also petitioned for a new trial, arguing that the judge's unannounced visit to a crime scene violated his right to be present at all phases of his trial. Three months later, two white men, Ernest Holbrook Jr., age 19, and Herman Ray Rucker, age 26, were charged in Tina Harmon's rape and murder. Again, there was no physical evidence linking either man to the crime, and both men actually passed lie detector tests. Holbrook was at his sister's wedding the weekend of the abduction, but police were convinced that Holbrook and Rucker were the perpetrators based on the testimony of two witnesses. Again, we cannot emphasize this enough. Witnesses are great if they're telling the truth. But when they're not, they're deterrent, and they screw up investigations. Holbrook's cousin, Curtis Maynard, and his acquaintance, Susan Siegler, claimed that after a night of drinking at the Siegler's house, Rucker had confessed to them that he and Holbrook had killed a little girl who had resisted their sexual advances. Now, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, Rucker was convicted and sentenced to life in prison on June 9, 1982. Two months later, Holbrook was convicted and given a life sentence as well. Holbrook wept as he was led away from his wife and one-month-old son. Now, Megan Barrett Cusino wrote on the National Registry of Exonerations website that it was soon after Holbrook and Rucker were convicted, the reliability of one of the two witnesses against them, Susan Sigler, was called into question when she was convicted of filing a false rape claim. Sigler was also discovered to have lied on her marriage license, claiming she had one prior husband who was deceased when she actually had four living ex-husbands. Great investigation, guys. The other witness against Holbrook and Rucker, Curtis Maynard, well, he was mentally impaired, and he recanted his testimony, claiming that he had been pressured by Stark County detectives who had used Maynard's probation for past felony convictions as leverage. Now, following Maynard's recantation, Rucker was granted a new trial, and he was acquitted by a jury on June 16, 1983. Holbrook sought a new trial, but his requests were repeatedly denied, and he unfortunately remained in prison. But luckily for Holbrook, 
It was in April of 1984 when Robert A. Buell, a former employee of the City of Akron Planning Department, was convicted of the abduction and killing of 11-year-old Krista Lee Harrison. This crime was very similar to the killing of Tina Harmon that had occurred in a neighboring town. And again, 6th grader Krista Lee was dragged into a dark-colored van, as I mentioned before, as she was playing on July 17th in a park across the street from her home. Her body was found six days later in an abandoned garage in rural Holmes County. She had been strangled. An autopsy found evidence of a sexual attack. The FBI and police in Wayne, Holmes, Ashland, and Stark counties pursued almost 600 leads in the case, including reports of a man who had photographed Krista at softball games. Sketches of this abductor were mailed to 400 police departments across Ohio with a description of the van that sped away from the park that day. Now, one of the things that was found was identical rust-colored carpet fibers of an uncommon type, and those were found on the bodies of both girls. So the manufacturer of the carpet actually confirmed that in the state of Ohio, they had only sold enough of that particular carpet for a few homes. And guess what? An identical carpet was found in Robert Buell's van. Luckily, this set the stage for Holbrook's conviction to be set aside, and the charges against him were dismissed on May 4th, 1984. He was released after spending over two years in prison. Curtis Maynard was convicted of perjury for his false testimony in Rucker's trial and was lucky enough to spend 13 months in prison. Then you have Dawn Marie Hendershot. Now, she was the seven-year-old Maslin girl who really kicked off the original story that Mary Grace was covering. And she was last seen on September 29th walking home from her elementary school in Maslin. Donald Lee Maurer was convicted of sexually abusing and murdering the seven-year-old girl, and he was actually sentenced to die in the electric chair. That's one of the joys of looking into these cases when you do actually see closure. Like when they found Kelly Ann Prosser's raincoat alongside the, the road, the right sleeve was smeared with blood, and they were pretty confident something tragic had happened. And it was only about a half mile away that they discovered it. And it was in a cornfield, and unfortunately, it was the eight-year-old's dead body. Police at the time say she was strangled and sexually molested. Now, police have questioned, or had questioned at the time, a 63-year-old Columbus man who was charged with gross sexual imposition in an attack on another girl the night before Kelly disappeared. Quote, the big thing on my mind, is that I hope Kelly didn't suffer, unquote. Her father, Marty Hoffman, told a Columbus reporter, quote, I can't imagine the terror she went through, eight years old, grabbed off the street by some guy. I wanted to talk about this so maybe one family can be spared this pain. This community has got to know how much jeopardy their kids are in. Took nearly 40 years, but the killer of eight-year-old Kelly Prosser was actually solved. On June 26, 2020, the family finally got an answer about who killed 
their child. Columbus police investigators who never gave up on the cold case matched a dead man's DNA to the rape and murder of Kelly. Quote, our family has spent many long years waiting for Kelly Ann's murder to be solved, unquote, according to a statement released by the Kelly's family after police announced the news. It was on a Friday afternoon in 2020 when the press conference was held where they released the name of now-deceased Harold Warren Jarrell as the man behind the killing. He had passed away at the age of 67 in 1996 in Las Vegas. So unfortunately, he was not able to be held accountable. This all happened because detectives recently began working with a genealogy company called Advanced DNA to use DNA from the crime scene to help identify the suspect. They were able to actually establish a family tree and they were followed up on those leads to possible family members. The initial match was with a third cousin through the process. They determined that Jarrell was Kelly's killer. Now, Tammy Seal's killer is questionable because he repeatedly denied any involvement in the case. As stated before, Tammy was delivering newspapers when she disappeared in October of 1980. Her body was found in February the following year. Now, in 2008, the Innocence Project got involved and they wanted to test the DNA and the original judge, Richard McMonagall, uh, actually granted the request. And unfortunately for Morales, the testing didn't find DNA anywhere. And so he was basically left stuck in jail. And in the case of Demita Sullivan, Richard E. Phillips, 22, was found guilty of her murder in July 1987, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Now, he confessed to police that he actually had struck Demita in the stomach with a rake while he was raking leaves in the backyard of his Noah Avenue home. Phillips said Demita persisted in annoying him over an incident that occurred earlier at her home. And then he said he dragged the body behind the neighbor's garage and covered her with leaves and debris. That's bad enough. But Phillips then admitted to killing 16-year-old Christina Parrish of Akron on September 6, 1984. Her body was discovered April 13, 1987 in a grave about 80 feet from where Demita's body was found five years earlier. Again, this information comes from the Akron Beacon Journal. Unfortunately, there were some victims whose killers got away. Now, the scariest thing about this era was it was the heart of stranger danger. But yet these girls would just continually disappear. And clearly not every case is connected, but as you can see, some are. What you can also see is there's a lot of sick and deranged people who live in the state of Ohio, which is awesome. But I do have to give kudos where they are due, and that begins with the Attorney General's office and Dave Yost for making cold cases such a priority, not only for the family, but for the communities. Now, again, Mary Grace Poitamani for her excellent work in 1982 for the Akron Beacon Journal. A lot of the information shared in this episode comes from her extensive article from October 3rd, 1982. Now, if you have any information about these unsolved cases, 
please reach out to your local police department or Crime Stoppers. This episode is a really good example of how focused the country was on protecting our children, but in the process, some still slipped through the cracks. So, again, thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As you guys know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And as always, if you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes. Or if you want to contribute via Venmo, you can use my username at bill-huffman-3. You can help support the show also by leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you listen to your favorite pod- podcasts. Again, those five stars help keep the important cases that I cover, such as pretty much every case I talked about today in the spotlight. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that I have coming down in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys again for tuning in to this week's episode of Who Killed? Hopefully these families will eventually get some answers like the Holloways did this week. It has been a very wild week in the world of true crime, as it appears to be every week. As always, you can catch me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And until next time, stay healthy and be safe. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.